Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Wickham, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be listening to a housing news crossover episode that features Homebridge Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer Brian Woody White. In this episode, White discusses what increasing diversity within the housing finance industry looks like on a practical level. But before we listen, here's a brief word on Housing Wire's newest podcast. Right now, more than ever, the housing industry has been having honest conversations about how race impacts the home buying process. To heighten the discussion, Housing Wire is launching Honest Conversations, a new mini podcast series to examine the state of minority home ownership in America. For eight weeks starting in February, please join Housing Wire Daily each Wednesday as we aim to provide listeners with a greater perspective on how race, housing, and wealth intersect and what experts are doing to close the home ownership gap. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with our latest segment of the Housing News Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Brian Woody White, who until October was the Chief Information Officer at Homebridge Financial Services, but in October assumed the role of Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Homebridge. We're excited to dive into what prompted that unusual shift of roles and also what he hopes to accomplish there. Woody, welcome to Housing News. Hello, how are you? And I'm happy to be here. Ah, we're so happy to have you. So we have a lot to get into, but the very first question we always want to ask people is, how did you end up in mortgage? Uh, All the executives we talked to, it's amazing where they came from and where they ended up. Well, let's see. I actually uh, started at the Mortgage Bankers Association. You know, after I graduated college, I was on the media side. So I built a lot of what you would call master control centers for CNN in DC and C-SPAN. And uh, did that during college right after. And uh, one of my first big gigs was at the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. And I may have gotten them in a little bit of trouble uh, because I, you know, at that time, programming at the, at the PC level was kind of new. And uh, I developed an application with the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association called Echo. And that was in the 80s. And every lender was using Echo, FHA class with HUD. And I think the problem was MBA was making too much money in that particular channel. So they decided eventually to shut it down. But uh, it it worked out very well. 
Wow, that's an interesting start and and definitely, you know, a different way to get here. Now, then most of your uh, work has been in tech. So tell us about that. What Tell us uh, some of the things that you've done. Uh, a whole lot. I, I'll tell you, I'll have to go all the way back just to give you an idea of how I got into tech because um, I was actually in high school and I worked for a congressman. His name was Congressman Pfizer in New York. And I, I went into the office. I was an intern and there were all these computers just sitting there, you know, collecting dust. So I picked up a manual and taught myself how to use the system and didn't realize I was teaching myself COBOL. To me, it was just learn how to use it. So I taught myself COBOL PL1 and I basically learned how to use the systems. And I I did that for the congressman. And when I went to University of Maryland College Park, it was interesting because they were teaching me all this mainframe stuff for computer science, but I was running the Educational Technology Center and I was receiving computers, you know, personal computers in 1981 for the first time. So I immediately thought this was the future, but there were no classes. So I taught myself basic Apple talk, whatever it is I could get my hands on. And from there, it just it just spiraled up. I I finally got my job at, for example, the Mortgage Bankers Association. I worked at Sally Mae, did a lot of digital imaging worked at the Pentagon, worked on uh, digital imaging on submarines, uh, doing that type of stuff. Um, Many things, I even worked at Aetna, running all their information architecture and uh, data architecture, Uh, just so many different places, so many different things, so many different technologies. I'm a tech head, I'm a gadget head. You know, I did a lot of the same things for Homebridge in terms of re-architecting Homebridge for the cloud as well as uh, all the new security architectures that deal with hacking and things like that. That is so impressive to hear someone who, you know, just picked up a manual and taught themselves COBOL. Like, what? That's crazy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it was mainframe back in the day, but when computers flipped over and I was right there, you had to teach yourself. There were no classes. Well, and I, I feel like the, you know, um, that's really the heart of tech is is being willing to to look and find the answers that aren't aren't immediately in front of you. So I'm sure that served you well through the years, but it's still nonetheless a very impressive accomplishment to to be at that forefront, you know? Yeah, it was a fun ride, I'll tell you. <laughs> so so let's go from there. So here you have this entire career in tech, a very impressive career in tech, and you're at Homebridge and you're their um, chief information officer. So what prompted the change? You know, how, how did that new role come about to, to switch to their chief diversity and inclusion officer? We're always going to throw the George Floyd incident into it because that was the center for many things that drove many conversations. But there were conversations at Homebridge a couple of years prior. And, uh, you know, it's like every other company, right? You're doing business and you're trying to make this pivot, but it's just a lot of volume. I was the, you know, running IT and I just couldn't move into it. So uh, we finally had a really good conversation. And uh, I like everything uh, that our CEO and COO had to say. They liked everything I had to say. And um, we just decided to make it happen. And uh, it was a big change for both of us. But I've been doing a number of things in the community along this along these lines, uh, speaking at churches, holding personal finance classes. Uh, I didn't mention, but I also used to be a, a, a certified financial planner and other things like that. So I did that and worked, uh, you know, just helping in the community, teaching people about mortgages, helping them get homes and things like that. And all of that culminated into that conversation. And here we are. 
Wow, that's really, that's, that's great. So what is, what is the goal of your role? Like, what are you hoping to accomplish? Well, I kind of put things into three major pillars uh, in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish at Homebridge. The first thing is always the issue of opportunity. Um, you know, I'll, I'll throw it out there, you know, Homebridge, uh, like many other companies, especially where you have a company that's filled and people know people, you bring in people, you bring in friends. And, you know, that's just how the mortgage industry and many industries work. But when you look around, you don't have the diversity that you plan. You know, it's just not there. And one of my first pillars is to really get into uh, recruiting and monitoring. And not so much trying to move into the HR space and get into recruiting in that manner, but really put in the mechanisms to make sure our recruiters understand we plan to be a diverse company. You know, I, I can tell you, I remember uh, in IT recruiting from uh, one recruiter and, uh, you know, I think I had 10 positions open. And there was no diversity in any of the positions in any of the recruiters and anything this guy was sending me. And I finally called him up and I said, so I'm trying to understand how is this possible? You know, I know where we're located in, you know, in the New York, New Jersey area. How is it possible that there's no diversity in any of the candidates you're sending me? And I basically told him, you either figure that out or we're not doing business anymore. So, you know, the first piece for me is really getting a good plan around monitoring. It sounds simple to, to monitor recruiters, but it's not as simple as it sounds. So that's the first step. The second step is the DNA of Homebridge. We have ADP, we have tools that tell us, you know, how many black men are here, how many Hispanics, things like that. What I want to do is put that on, uh, on steroids and really make sure we know almost real time what's happening. Because I'd like to know if something's going on, for example, and in one month, 12 Hispanic people left out of IT, I'd like to know why, what, what happened. So that's, that's my next step is to really dig into the analytics and make it more real time. So we all know, not just me, but all the managers in the company understand where we are with our DNA, you know, concerning diversity at Homebridge. And the third is the community side. It's affordable lending. Um, one of the key pillars for me was to really get into affordable lending. You know, it's not that Homebridge or any mortgage company doesn't do some level of affordable lending. They do Freddie Mac, Fannie, and, you know, work with HFAs and things like that. It, it, it happens today. And, and even around affordable lending, it's not like the products are not there. I believe the products are there, but in order for us to address affordable lending, there has to be a certain level of commitment, period to really focus on affordable lending, LMI. And that's what my focus is gonna be, working with our retail wholesale divisions, working with the executives to deal with the quagmire. There is a bit of a quagmire when you talk about it. And I mean, I could get into that, but the bottom line is I wanna focus on affordable lending so that we can increase our participation, if you could look at it that way. And even though I have three pillars, there's one fourth pillar that I have, and that has to do with our business contracts. Um, I wanna go through our business contracts and see where we could advance uh, the opportunities for women-owned and minority-owned businesses. We, we write so many contracts a year, whether it be you know, on catering, whether it be on uh, appraisal services. And I think now is a good time to really go through that portfolio and try to grow that portfolio with uh, women-owned and minority-owned businesses as well. 
Well, I really appreciate you breaking it down like that because that that gives you know other people who are maybe not as far along as Homebridges in this as as they as they look at this and go, we want to increase diversity and inclusion. We want to we want to do some of this, but where do you start? What what does that even look like? And and those four things that you just said, and any any lender could take those four things and build a roadmap out out of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Really interesting. You know, uh, talking about the recruiting part. You know, anytime you're you're a lender, whoever you have, you know, on the other end of the you know of the lending situation as as the LO or whatever, that's who they're going to naturally reach out to. That's their community, their affinity. So so tell us a little bit about why it's important to have people at that level uh, who are who are diverse. Yeah, and it's not just at that level; it's at the executive level too. I mean, I could tell you as a as a black man that. Um, when I go out and I was hunting for executive jobs, I would go to www, whatever that company was, and I I try to figure out is there any diversity at the top? You know, you know if this uh, on one hand if they hear a company say we've been in business for ninety years, but you know I go in and I look and I see no diversity at the top. So it's like that for everything, you know. So if you know you know the bottom line is we've heard the melting pot scenario. If you look around this country different people to everywhere, doesn't matter where you go. And if we can't reflect that internally, then we can't even identify with the people we're actually trying to sell our products to. So that's that's the primary focus. And uh, I think if we're in an African-American neighborhood, we should understand the community. If we're in a Hispanic neighborhood, we should understand the same. Same for LGBTQ community, having different challenges. We should understand all of that. So we should we have to be diverse as a company. When when you first joined Humbridge, I mean, did you did you realize like um, obviously they're you know the other executives there are very committed to this or or they wouldn't have created this position. You know what what about Humbridge? Did you see that right away that you're like okay this is a company I want to work for? Yeah, I did. You know, I, actually it happened for me at the interview. Um, you know, during the interview, everybody was pretty open. Um, you know, one of the things I said, which Normally, I wouldn't get the job for, but <laughs> one of the things I said was, you know, I'm not the yes man. I, I'm not the person to make you feel good or give you the answers that you want to hear. The bottom line is technology is complicated, and I'm going to tell you what you need to know. And, um, you know, everybody received that rel- rather well, and I've been received well at Homebridge, and uh, it's been a great experience. That's great. One of the things we've talked about um, at Housing Wire on different podcasts, we had a whole uh, session on it in the fall at our annual event, is kind of like, how do you create an atmosphere where people feel like they can be themselves in the workplace, whatever whatever diverse background they're coming from, but specifically Black people in, in the mortgage industry who yeah, I mean, you look around, it's pretty, it's still pretty rare. So, so how do you foster a community within the company where that's, where that's happening? Well, you know, one of the first things and one of the first major communications I put out to everybody in the company, it started with, you know, it's safe to be honest. You know, that was one of the first things I really wanted to communicate to everybody is that, you know, in order for us to have this conversation or any deeper conversation, you have to feel safe that you can be honest. You know, that there's no retribution that's going to follow you, because I can tell you right now, I filled out surveys working for other companies and I didn't feel it was safe, to be honest. So when I filled out the survey, yeah, they got some information from me. But was it the information that really could help change the company? No, because I was afraid to divulge that type of information. So 
one of the things that I've been working on, you know, internally at Homebridge is really just getting everybody to understand who I am, how I work. I know a lot of people at Homebridge, but a lot of people don't know me to get them to understand, you know, it's, it's an environment where it's safe to be honest. And if I have to have any kind of survey, really asking really, really deep questions, if I anonymize that survey, everybody at Homebridge clearly understands though that information doesn't come back to Homebridge. It goes to a third party company. That information is stripped. And all we see is the information that we need to see to help the company grow. Trust is key, right? If we're going to change that. Deal. It, it's a big deal. And in financial services, where you have minorities working in the companies, they're also living outside the company in their community. And it's and because of what has happened in the past so many times, there is distrust with the minority community, especially with financial services. And that distrust also moves in because, you know, we're still people and we don't forget all that stuff. So, you know, there's there's a reason why some things happen. So, you know, when somebody takes a look and says, well, why do you think so many African-Americans don't have homes and why do you think they're struggling and this and that and the other? It's it's just not because of money. It's because of other things, you know, that happen in the community that create that distrust, you know, whether it be, you know, if you take a look at 2008 and subprime and what happened and who got hurt by that, you know, you take a look at Tuskegee, this, that, and the other, it's just a lot of distrust. So when you're sitting down with the loan officer and they're saying, trust me, I'll take care of you. You know, if you don't trust the person that you're sitting across from for other reasons, it's going to be a problem. So there's, there's a lot of training and, and, and discussion that has to happen, you know, in those situations. I think some of that discussion is very uncomfortable for people. They don't know how to have that discussion and um, they don't know maybe what that's supposed to look like. How do you, how do you foster those kind of discussions? Well, I, I think people also have to understand certain things that happen in communities. I, you know, for example, I'll, you know, talking about the African-American community. So for example, when I grew up, there was never a conversation at the dinner table or otherwise about anybody paying a mortgage. We lived in apartments. Everybody lived in an apartment. Nobody talked about refinancing or so I literally graduated high school and a mortgage was never discussed. Never, never even thought about what it was. So, you know, when you think about what's happening, you have to begin to identify with the communities and you have to have these discussions inside the company so people understand what's happening. So, you know, in, in the African-American community, I can tell you, there is a lack of historical knowledge, which I just explained. You know, nobody had a conversation about how Uncle Joe bought three buildings and is renting them out. It wasn't a conversation. Nobody talked about getting a mortgage. So when you get to be my age, if, you know, at least let's say when I was 22, even though I had the money to go out and get a townhouse, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a thought for me because it's not how I grew up. Nobody talked about it or anything like that. Then there's a, just the lack of trust you know, you know, with the black community and understanding what happened and how we get built and, and treated in, incorrectly. And, you know, I remember seeing uh, on Good Morning America, there was uh, a video and it talked about a black woman called the place to get her house appraised. Very nice neighborhood. 
Her house was appraised. It came back $100,000 less than everybody else in the neighborhood. She was married to a white guy. She invited another appraiser, but she got rid of all of her pictures and just left his pictures up and the house was appraised $100,000 plus more. So it's that kind of lack of trust across many services that you, you have to get back into education and getting people to understand and you have to learn how to understand as a mortgage company as well. But then there's a lack of understanding of the mortgage process in general. Like I said, I never had any conversations about a mortgage growing up. And then there's just the general issue of racism and bias. So, you know, those four things are things that you have to talk about openly, you know, from a diversity and inclusion standpoint with employees, because the employees take this conversation back to the community and then vice versa. You have to figure out how and where to go and how to have community conversations as well. So that that's what it's going to take. And this is a long game. This is not something that you know, I can go have one conversation on Zoom and it's going to fix it. This is a grassroots effort now. And that's what it's going to take for not only Homebridge, but the federal government, the GSEs and everybody to embrace to 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 change the, the direction. Yeah, you know, I, I saw that same uh, show you were talking about with the appraiser yeah. and it just it just highlighted like how much work there is to do. Who even knew exactly. that that would, you know, I mean, that's crazy that that's happening in 2020, 2021, but, um, yeah. but it does, we know that now. And I think if anything, the last year taught people who weren't paying attention before or weren't, right. didn't want to see it, whatever you want to say, for whatever reason, didn't know, didn't want to know that this is the way things really are. This is the way they have been operating. And, right. and now it's out and, you know, now, now more people know about what are you going to do about it? And remember. The mortgage industry has to solve this particular formula because you can go, well, I, I can mention housing wire. You can go to most communications and what do you see? The biggest opportunity for the mortgage market is the collective of minority communities. That's their biggest marketplace. So this issue has to be resolved. We have to figure out how to better work with the, with the minority communities because that basically might become the lifeline of our industry. Well, you know, the Urban Institute put out their annual report just yesterday uh, or a report yesterday about um, this very thing and looking forward for the next 20 years. And it just confirms what they had said last year, and the year before that uh, white homeownership is going to go down uh, right. and, and the share of minority homeownership, that's the only part that's growing in the next 20 years right. from their perspective. But you know what, this, this segues us backwards to the quagmire I talked about, right? Because at the end of the day, there are two things that we know about the mortgage process, right? If I could break down a mortgage in just two simple components, right? There is somebody like a Woody White who is minority, for example, but I'm a paper. I got great credit and you probably can close my, my loan just like that. But then there's the affordable lending. So remember, we just talked about what the biggest market is. The fact of the matter is that market might be filled with a lot of essential workers. Who knows what's, what's in that market? I know I'm in that market, but at the same time, there are a number of loans that will take more work. So the quagmire that you have is you go out and become a loan officer. You didn't become a loan officer not to make money, right? You're you're, you have to feed your family too. So there are two loans on your desk. One loan is 
$2 million house, someone with perfect credit. The other loan is a $310,000 house, somebody with credit that you're gonna have to do a little work with. You're gonna have to work with Fannie, Freddie to figure out how to get them into the home, do more DTI. And what you're gonna make from that extra work is gonna be less than you're gonna make from that A paper loan. So the quagmire is, how does every mortgage company or bank inspire loan officers to do both? That's the quagmire. Because at the end of the day, everybody is working hard every day to feed their families. And a loan officer is doing the same thing. And you, you, know, you, you have to figure out that quagmire if you want to increase affordable lending. I did see some of the things that Joe Biden is talking about in terms of increasing affordable lending, but still at the end of all of that, it's still the loan officer. I, I so appreciate you bringing that up. We we did a story uh, about a month ago because in this high volume environment that we're at, then this is what you're seeing. Like why, to your point, unless you have um, another another incentive, either your personal convictions about it, your morals, or, or there's some something from your company, why exactly. would you spend that time? And we actually had loan officers go on the record and say, I'm not doing the hard loans. Now, they didn't say those hard loans are minority loans, but right. if you're not doing the hard loans, um, because why should they? They're like, well, you know, I'm going to spend all this time. Um, and then our, our uh, managing editor is in the process of buying a house and he, he's in a competitive area. And he was like, why is this house still on the market? And the person was like, well, the two, the two offers that came in before you that were under contract, they were both W2 and, you know, the lenders weren't right. really willing to do it. And it's like, this will, this will come back to haunt you when there's not all that volume. Right. That's but right. From your perspective, how do, how do you incentivize people at that, at that very basic level at the, in the weeds, on the ground, boots on the ground level to do that? Right. I mean, the bottom line is um, this is a re-architecting. I, I think it's a re It might be a re-architecting a comp. It might be a re-architecting of many things. You know, on one hand, you know, I've thought I've thought about this a lot. You know, on one hand, you've seen companies where, for example, you have reverse mortgages, right? Some companies have taken that entire function and created a separate company saying, you know what? This company will just do reverse mortgage. You know, I don't know if you do that and say, okay, you know what, we're going to we're going to focus heavily on affordable lending and we're going to create an affordable lending company. And everybody who is inspired to work here will 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 do that. I, I, it's, it's hard because it's something that has been going on for years. And now when you look again at the new market opportunity, it has to be fixed. And I think it's a re-architecting of how everybody looks at a loan and the opportunity uh, to figure out how to resolve the problem. I wish I had a magic bullet and magic answer for you, but I don't. I think everyone is trying to figure out the sweet spot. Well, you know, one of the questions I have is as as in the in the industry in general, you have less, you know, bank uh locations, you know, brick and mortar. And then of course this year, like, you, you know, you can't even, you got to, you can't even get into the bank. A lot of times I was closing a loan and you had to make an appointment. You had to do all this stuff, understandably. Right. So as that goes, like, how then do you connect with the community that you're trying to lend to when it's online? Mostly, you know what I mean? Like, it, as opposed to like, Hey, this, this is our bank, this is our location. We're going to sponsor the local baseball team, soccer team, whatever. Um, you know, how do you connect with that community and how do you educate that community? 
Yeah, I think right now we're in special circumstances. And I think every month we learn something new about how to do banking during a, you know, an international pandemic. I think uh, things, obviously, if you look at the volume, technically, obviously, things are doable, right? The volume is through the roof and, and people are closing loans. Um, but I think when this is over with, um, like I said, it's, it's going to be a grassroots effort for us to really get back to the community banking, which, you know, I'm not sure big banks consider themselves community banks anymore, but I think every financial services company is going to realize, again, in order to, to, to work with this new marketplace, everybody's going to be community banking. That's what it's going to be. And that's a grassroots effort. It looks different. And I think uh, a new type of DNA is going to run through many financial services companies. Really great point. And, and something that, you know, uh, Joe Biden's uh, ascendant, you know, the fact that he got elected president, now yeah. maybe people have to have to be paying attention more than they did. He, hi- uh, he hired somebody who was the former, formerly was in charge of uh, the affirmatively furthering fair housing under yeah. Obama uh, at HUD, I think to, to be the interim at HUD, it's like, you know, it, all those things that maybe have been laying low a little bit in the last couple of years, not, yeah. you know, shouldn't have been, but I think you're going to have a, a different enforcement model and just a different, like people are looking, people are going to be looking right. now. And, and, you know, if you just took a look at a, at a high level in terms of what Biden is talking about, he's already starting with, he's already published a number of components, you know, a $15,000 tax credit for first time home buyers. There, there, there's a lot of things there that he's talking about that will help. But, you know, we have to be realistic and, and remember that the minority community, whether it be at the COVID level or the savings impact level, was hit hard. So the question is, will the minority community cover, recover from a financial standpoint to even take advantage of what Biden is about to do? So, you know, that's 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 to be said. But again, uh, it's going to be a grassroots effort, even, even when we took a look at you know, whatever was offered recently in terms of, you know, the mortgage help and things like that. A lot of people in minority communities didn't even know what it was, didn't even know how to use it. So, you know, that grassroots piece is missing. It's still missing. That's why people just missed out because they didn't know. So, you know, how we communicate to the community, it can't all happen online. It, it That's nice. Maybe, maybe for millennials, but uh, that's not going to work across the board anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. So, so give us some insight. If you know, a lot of um, larger companies now have, like you, a diversity and inclusion officer. They've really made it a priority. Say you're at a at a smaller company. Say you're at a smaller lender, or you're you're your um, independent mortgage banker. You know, what does that look like? What are some steps you can take? Um, just just like from a high level. Okay, what's the low hanging fruit? What's something I can do? Well, the, the first thing is when you start talking about diversity and inclusion and, and equity, that's a, that's a personal conversation. You know, even though you're talking at a high level, the people receiving the message is a very personal conversation. And in order to have those kind of conversations, everybody has to be comfortable, especially the executive, right? So that's where the conversation really has to start. You know, they have to be willing to say, hey, let's have a meeting over here and talk about this. 
let's have a meeting over here and talk about that. So for me, whatever company you're in, you, you have to start that conversation at the top and see how it goes. You know, everything that I mentioned in terms of the pillars, that could be done at any time. You know, you could examine your recruiting, you can try to get into more of the details, you can, you know, berate your, your, your recruiters if they're not doing what they should do, uh, which is the right thing. You, you can do those things today. But at the end of the day, if you realize that most of your recruiters, for example, don't care about diversity, they don't really care about what you're talking about. In order for you to make that type of change, you're going to have to have support. So you, you have to start with, with management at some level. Even if you're the smartest person and you can figure out all these things to do, it won't go anywhere. Because remember, if you have a bunch of recruiters that are horrible and you just want to get rid of them, you can't just get rid of them. Some of those recruiters are probably friends or you know, people that they've been doing business with for 20 years. And all of a sudden you're saying these guys are no good. You know, they're not giving us diverse clients. So you have to have that management conversation first. But I think everything else, if everybody's open to the conversation, they'll, they'll fall into place. If everybody is truly uh, feels as honest to be, you know, it, it's safe to be honest in the conversation. I do think, too, there just has to um you know, we all swim in a, in the ocean, right? The, the ocean that we swim in affects us. And I, I feel like this is also what happened with me too, where all of a sudden in a very public way, it wasn't okay to, to say those jokes or, or do those things or be right. that kind of jerk person. And people saw, even if from their own heart, it wasn't in there, they saw, hey, that's not going to fly anymore. And even if I'm that person, I better change or I better figure out a different thing because it's just not acceptable anymore. And I right. think that this year has been a building factor for, for this, for the, for the African-American community that like, you know, this is not acceptable anymore and you're going right. to be held account here. And so, you know, like any cultural change, you're going to have to either get on or get off. Right. And I, I think the, think the difference with black lives matter. And in this particular respect is that, you know, from a me too standpoint, that was really driven talking about, treatment in the, in the workplace, treating women a certain way. Whereas when, when, you, when you lead with a conversation and you say Black Lives Matter, the bigger issue in Black Lives Matter is not murdering people uh, you know, on the streets. And it doesn't exactly translate into business the way everybody wants it to. It helps drive a conversation, doesn't necessarily translate for all businesses um, this, the same way. So I, I think, you know, you have to be willing to at least start the conversation and continue forward, you know, from a business standpoint, because I've had conversations out there where some companies are, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, they don't even want to have the conversation because they think it's a conversation about, about what's happening between Blacks and the police and what does that have to do with business? And I've even had some people ask me, you know, why why are black people so against the police? And you know, having having answered that question a thousand times, um, it gets confusing in business. That's a great point. I mean, it it is a harder translation for your point because all of the Me Too was about workplace discrimination. I mean, it started there, right. and and so I think that is a that is a thing. Um, 
if people are looking, what are some resources that you found that have helped you, you know, or did you just have to start from scratch or did you find like, oh, the MBA has this great, I know they have a DNI initiative. I know other companies do. Are, are you starting from scratch or were you like building on what they'd already done? Uh, mostly from scratch, but I was already, you know, familiar with the MBA. So I, I immediately joined MBA. I don't know if you've ever heard of NAMBA, but uh, I'm a member of NAMBA as well. So I was already kind of in the mix. Um, but um, I'm obviously much more focused right now. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of webinars and I'll read and, you know, just, just to, you know, today there is no shortage of information, that's for sure. So, uh, you know, if I want to be up 24 hours a day, seven days a week absorbing info, uh, that's what I'll do. Well, we really appreciate your time coming on and just hearing from from all the different facets of your career, right? From coming from that and then and then to make the switch and and really making a difference there. Affordable housing is one of our main focuses of reporting this year. And yeah. you know, as we do that, we'd love to talk to you again. But thank you so much for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Anytime, anytime. Been a blast. All right. Thanks, Woody. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Alcina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily as we wrap up this week's news coverage. As always, we like to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Have a great weekend and catch everyone back here again on Monday.